Welcome to the 245th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Jonathan Drory, author of the nonfiction book, Around the World in 80 Trees. Stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jonathan Drury, author of the book Around the World in 80 Trees. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your book Around the World in 80 Trees yet, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially a group of 80 short biographies, um, plant portraits, if you like, of my favorite trees, uh, not individual trees, but, uh, but species around the world. And uh, what I've tried to do is to combine uh, a bit of history, a bit of science, a bit of culture, um, you know, because I think the most interesting things happen at the boundaries between subjects. And that, that's what I've tried to get across in the in the stories. And what interested you about trees and led you to writing this book? Well, I, I grew up near the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm British. And so uh, I grew up in London. And my father uh, had really always been interested in botany from a scientific point of view. And my mother had been interested in plants from the kind of the beauty and gardening point of view. And they dragged me and my brother off to... Um, off to Kew Gardens practically every weekend for my whole childhood. And I think something probably sunk in. Uh, one of the things that my parents used to do was feed us bits of the plants, uh, you know, to keep us interested and then tell us stories about them. And I remember having a lick of an opium poppy, which was uh, had a great <laughs> reaction, actually. It's less the reaction of the slight numbness on my tongue, but the reaction of my teacher when I told her. <laughs> that was interesting, yeah. Um, well, following your research, do you have a favorite tree from around the world? Well, you know, it's like asking which is your favorite child, isn't it? <laughs> uh, at least the other trees that I exclude won't be hurt by it. But the, um, uh, I mean, there are several. There's, there's one which is the, the cedar of Lebanon. Uh, and it, one of the reasons that I love that one so much uh, is that uh, I remember when I was little, uh, seeing the, the cedar in a park near us and uh, my dad telling us amazing stories about the, the history of the cedar and how the Phoenicians had used the wood for, um, uh, you know, for building ships and had, had this fantastic navy as a result. And, you know, amazing, amazing stories. And uh, when once we, we found it, it had been struck by lightning and the tree had died. And I remember it was the first time I saw my dad cry um, it's very sort of moving, even just thinking about it now. And he, uh, uh, you know, I, I think as a sort of six or seven year old, I'd always thought that my father was in benign control of everything. And it was a sort of realization that actually, um, actually, he wasn't. And, uh, you know, it's a sort of part of, uh, uh, I don't know, a rite of passage in a way. Uh, but the Cedar of Lebanon has always been a great favorite since. And then um, a, another one that I absolutely love is the um, uh, what's called the quiver tree. Uh, it's a, a relative of the aloe, like the aloe vera that you use in cosmetics. And it, it's a sort of 40-foot high tree that grows in the desert in Namibia. And, uh, you know, that part of southern Africa is incredibly dry. And this thing is, you know, it just flourishes there and it's fantastically resilient. But the reason I love it is because 
it's the national tree of Namibia, and so when anyone sees it, they smile. It's like um, it's like driving a Morris Minor. I don't know if you know that car, but <laughs> when you drive one of those, everyone smiles at you. And uh, the the thought of uh, being a tree that everyone smiles at, it's also got this sort of wonderful finish that, uh, you know, on the uh, bark that's a sort of waxy, white, powdery coating that makes you want to touch it. So the thought of being a tree that people smile at and want to stroke is a... Uh, it's a sort of wonderful thing. And given the numerous headlines and news stories about climate change and obviously scientific studies, um, what what will the immediate impact of climate change be on the trees that most people know? Well, there's there's two kinds of impact. There's there's the the first and the sort of most obvious one, which you know people can immediately relate to, is you know the trees aren't getting enough water, so they they die, you know, the, the climate becomes drier in a place or it becomes wetter or it becomes hotter and the, the trees haven't adapted to that and so they suffer. Um, a second thing that happens is that when trees are suffering, they're more likely to get diseases and pests and so on that they can't fend off, you know, because trees can't up sticks and run away. They need to defend themselves and they have all sorts of ways of doing that. But if the climate changes too rapidly, they can't adapt. Then Another way that the which is more subtle but actually more more dangerous for trees is that trees depend on a whole lot of other organisms in order to survive. So, you know, they they the flowering trees, for example, they depend on uh, insects or bats or uh, all sorts of things to come and uh, take their pollen from place to place, um, and that's how they make baby trees, right? And mm-hmm. if those pollinators aren't around when the uh, when the flowers are out then, you know, the tree can't, can't have babies. And what happens with climate change is that all those sort of little relationships get thrown out of kilter. They, uh, in, you know, when the flowers are out, suddenly the insects aren't there at the right time. Uh, or when uh, the seeds are ready, uh, there's the, the little critters and animals that will disperse those seeds um, just aren't sort of available in the, in the right quantities. And so um, the trees have difficulty making the next generation. And so actually there are quite a lot of trees that are, that are under stress one way or another. And so around the world in 80 Trees is an illustrated book. Can you tell us about the illustrator and their work on your book? Yeah, um, the illustrations are by a French artist living in London called Lucille Clerc, uh, who is just fantastic. I mean, she's done a lot of um, botanical illustration before, but the approach she comes at is, is sort of quite surreal. Um, and the, the, that combined with the design and production value of the book, which I can't claim credit for, but the, the publisher, Lawrence King, has really sort of pushed the boat out. So it's not a, um, it's not a coffee table book. It's, it's really designed as something where the pictures and words complement each other and you, you know, you want to engage with both. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, the sort of combination of that design, the quality of the paper, that sort of heaviness of it uh, with the um, these sort of remarkable illustrations, uh, you know, I think creates something that's really very beautiful. And, and uh, you know, the publisher should be proud. I wish I could take credit for, for all of it, but I can only take credit for the words. Great. Well, in your research for your book, were there any facts or discoveries about trees that particularly surprised you? Um, again and again. Uh, I was surprised, uh, you know, that uh, I suppose, you know, uh, the trees have evolved, you know, to, to their own pace, doing their own thing. Uh, but some of the things that they've evolved to do have had remarkable effects on human beings. So, um, 
uh, you know, for example, there's a poisonous sap in the lacquer tree, the Japanese lacquer tree, um, that has been used for thousands of years for painting layer on layer of this very plastic-like material. If you can imagine what that would have been like a thousand years ago before plastics were invented, how people would have felt about these sort of waterproof materials that um, had come from the sap of, of the lacquer tree. But uh, these Japanese monks, um, a particular sect of, of monks, um, started experimenting with that lacquer and kind of mummifying themselves while they were still alive. Uh, they used to drink this, uh, this uh, solution of this, lacquer, uh, of this sap uh, and become kind of plasticized. Uh, and they, they had this very slow uh, death. And when, when they died, they were so poisonous uh, their bodies were so poisonous, but uh, the, the, when they were buried, they wouldn't decompose. And if they were dug up after a certain length of time and no maggots were infesting them, that was a sort of way to instant Buddhahood, uh, which is just a sort of extraordinary story. It was a, that was only made illegal in Japan in the late 19th century. And you can still go to Japanese shrines and see these uh, these mummies. They put dark glasses on them for some reason. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, and then there was a, a tree from Indonesia that um, has a, uh, a kind of latex, which the tree has evolved in order to um, uh, engulf any insects and seal any wounds that there might be. Um, but the, the latex itself absolutely changed the world. This was a, um, a substance that at the end of the 19th century, people discovered uh, was the the best possible and only possible insulator for submarine cables. Now, that doesn't sound very interesting, but it meant that suddenly nations could talk to each other on the telephone. Uh, and that wasn't possible before people used gutta percha. <laughs> the only use of it nowadays is in dental implants. Um, you know, and again and again, there are these examples of things that trees have done um, uh, that uh, you know, have had this sort of profound impact on, on human society. Um, one of my favourites is uh, the, um, a tree that in Britain is called Leylandii, and it's the product of two trees uh, that should never have had sex, but they did, in a garden in Wales in the 19th century. The two trees were from opposite ends of California. Uh, they uh, were planted in a garden in Wales. They hybridised and created an absolutely monster child, which we, we know in England as Leylandii. And what's interesting is not so much the botanical story, though that is interesting, but the way that the British have kind of weaponized the tree. They, uh, the British are completely hung up about privacy and marking territory. And they tend to have small gardens, small yards. And where the neighbors are too close, they plant this tree um, as a kind of living hedge. And the, uh, up until uh, the turn of this century, uh, there weren't regulations about the height of trees, only about the height of fences. And so people uh, were you know, literally murdering each other over the loss of light and uh, the um, inability to sort of see out because the neighbours had, had planted this, this kind of green, green wall. Uh, and at one point there were 18,000 simultaneous uh, court cases going on, <laughs> all to do with that tree. It's fantastic. Wow. Um, well, I know that there have been, um, in the last couple of years, some popular science articles about trees communicating with each other. Um, I'm curious if you have done any, um, in, in your research, if you had uh, looked at any of that and what your thoughts were on it. Oh, it, it, yeah. Yeah, the, um, 
uh, you know, I was on the board of the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew for, for nine years, and there was a lot of work about uh, going on uh, about uh, what are called mycorrhizae. Uh, it's a fantastic word for Scrabble. Uh, it's basically um, uh, the networks of, of fungi uh, that some people have called the wood wide web uh, that exist sort of in the soil um, and have a symbiotic relationship with trees. That means that they depend on each other. So the, the fungi um, have these very, very tiny filaments, uh, you know, white or greyish threads that run through the soil, hardly visible to the naked eye, maybe a 50th of a millimetre across. Um, and they're very good at extracting some of the extra nutrients that trees need. Uh, and they plug themselves into the roots of trees. Um, the, the, the trees themselves give in return, they give the products of photosynthesis, that's kind of carbon and sugar and so on, uh, to the fungi. So it's a sort of two-way relationship. But it turns out that it isn't just um, food that's going backwards and forwards. There's effectively information being sent. So when a tree is under stress, uh, especially when there's a, maybe a swarm of insects or uh, some sort of herbivores eating the tree, then signals can be sent across these, uh, down these sort of fungal networks um, and can travel you know, maybe uh, it would take 20 minutes to go uh, about uh, 50 yards or so um, to other trees that when they get that signal, uh, they start manufacturing chemicals that defend themselves against those predators, those herbivores. So there is information being sent. Whether you can say that it's intentional or not is a whole other matter. So, uh, you know, there are some people who would like to believe that trees are, are sentient and they're sort of <laughs> deciding to do a, to send messages. It's more like uh, a message, you know, the, the chemicals are diffusing and something's reacting to it uh, is, is, a, is a better way of think, thinking about it. Right. But one, one of the neat things, though, is that, um, you know, I was brought up to think that in a forest it's absolutely um, – dog eat dog if you excuse the metaphor or, or you know sort of um, the fight for light and that that is going on but also at different times of the year different species of trees actually send via these fungal networks they send um, carbon and sugar you know the things that they're sort of manufacturing from photosynthesis and um, to trees that are a bit more needy so at the beginning of the season when the deciduous trees aren't yet you know, in leaf, but the conifers are, um, then they're sending carbon that way. And then at the end of the season, uh, when the deciduous trees are really, um, you know, sort of being super efficient, uh, they can send some food the other way, which is a, a sort of nice altruistic thing, really. And I'm curious, when you were writing um, your book, or even before you were writing it, are there science or nature writers that have inspired you or specific books that have inspired you? Um, gosh, so many. Uh, you know, I was fortunate that, uh, you know, we have the Royal Botanic Calvin's Q kind of research library. And I found myself, uh, you know, there, there are the sort of popular uh, recent books, um, uh, but there are some fantastic things in the archive, you know, of, of especially I think the most exciting things for me were the um, accounts of early travellers, uh, you know, and just the, the sort of ridiculous uh, I don't know, hardships that they went through in, in you know, the, the sort of 18th century looking for plants or the 19th century, uh, you know, because this was a this was a big business. You know, people um, uh, were effectively sort of wanted a monopoly on really interesting new plants that they could sell in, you know, to, to collectors and at garden at the sort of early garden centers and so on. 
And, uh, you know, so they, they clubbed together and they sort of, you know, groups of entrepreneurs and they sent explorers out to, um, uh, to go get these, you know, amazing plants that no one had seen before and then work out how to breed them back home. And uh, the accounts of those people, you know, where they were really up against time and the investors were very keen to get a quick return. Um, you know, they're very funny, some of them, you know, with appalling stories of diarrhea and leeches and <laughs> all of that. <laughs> so um, what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend? Um one of my uh, favorite authors is Jim Crace. Uh, I uh, read a book called uh, called Harvest uh, that he wrote. And uh, the way that he's managed to sort of conjure up a, um, a medieval village, you're never quite sure where it is and, or even when it is. Uh, it's it's a sort of, it, well, I think one of the reviews said it's, a, it's writing of hallucinatory quality. And I, I uh, I absolutely agreed with that. I, I, you know, I, um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm nearly as good a writer as he is. But I, I tried in the, uh, in around the world in eighty trees to uh, describe the trees in a way that um, isn't like a textbook, and he was my sort of inspiration uh, for that. I tried to uh, convey a kind of a feeling um, and an emotion along with the. Um, uh, the description. It, he he does it fantastically well. It, it's absolutely luminous writing. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jonathan Drury, author of the brand new science and nature book, Around the World in 80 Trees. The book is available in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Jonathan, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much for having me. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.